the Construction Employers Podcast, your connection to what's happening in the Northeast Ohio construction industry. Brought to you by the Construction Employers Association. In today's episode, I interview House Democratic Leader Amelia Strong Sykes. Leader Sykes has been in the Ohio House of Representatives since November 2014 and represents the 34th District, which is the Akron area. We get into several topics, uh, obviously COVID-19 and what's being done or should be done to address that in the state, racial disparities and health outcomes, residency and construction, and so much more. So without further ado, I give you my discussion with Minority Leader Sykes. Hello, Leader Sykes. Hi, Tim. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Um, what have you been doing today? <laughs> oh, yeah, a lot of things today. It's um, like most days, I checking in with my office, seeing what constituents called in. Uh, we're dealing with an awful lot of unemployment compensation cases, uh, so navigating through those. Uh, making sure we're getting good information out to folks and planning uh, for the week ahead. So it's already been a very busy day, uh, and it's barely uh, the afternoon, um, but we are uh, running some marathon shifts these days with trying to be responsive to our constituents who are uh, very concerned about COVID, as everyone else is, and how they're going to pay their bills and stay safe. Um, and we're just trying to be a good resource for them. Absolutely. And uh, just I should note to the audience that we're recording this on September 18th. And uh, just to give context for when we are talking, um, right in the middle of the the last leg of an election, how is that going? It's going very well. Uh, In fact, yesterday we released some polling. Um, Our House candidates are uh, seven of the House candidates that we have are either ahead or tied in the polls or within the margin of error, which is really exciting uh, because many of our districts are gerrymandered to keep uh, certain uh, political parties from succeeding. But we've got some really great candidates who we've recruited who are running very hard races and they're breaking through some of that gerrymandering. So uh, we are excited about our prospects. We are also uh, Looking forward to November 3rd. <laughs> Hopefully right. it will be victorious. Uh, but this election season has been, very, has been very challenging. It's been a lot different than others. Um, it's been nonstop, and I think everyone's looking for a break. So hopefully when we take <laughs> right. that break on November 4th, we'll be able to celebrate and uh, be very excited about what, what happened the day before. Yeah, let's hope we can take the break and, um, and hope that the judges don't have to get involved, right? Here's hoping. I I will be uh, hoping that that is where we are, but I'm very realistic that I think that we might need to get some referees involved in some of these uh, these races. We anticipate them being very close, and of course, we've seen some of the comments coming out of the the current president, and that is very scary. But hopefully, our democracy prevails, and it will be without incident. And no matter what happens, we will be able to move this country forward because. Uh, Goodness gracious, we certainly need to. Absolutely. And I wanted to get into a little bit about your background. You you have a master's in public health? Yes, I do. So I uh, went to the University of Florida, received a master's degree in public health and a law degree at the same time. I would not recommend doing both. It sounds rough. (laughs) (laughs) It it was. It is as bad as it seems. 
Um, but it did shave off about a year of schooling. So you take, you give and take a bit. Um, but it's been um, really, really good to have that perspective uh, mm-hmm. during this COVID crisis because um, we are looking at a novel virus and trying to contain it and wanting to address everyone's need all in one full swoop. And most people aren't really familiar with public health and all of the things that it does. But public health is very expansive. It's not just uh, contact tracing, which people are now learning about, or disease prevention, or even the sanitarian to uh, inspect the the restaurants and and cafeterias and such. Uh, We look at things like uh, housing and neighborhoods, uh, environmental safety, uh, the economy and wages. And so when I'm looking at the COVID crisis as a person trained in public health, not only am I looking at the physical impact of how the disease impacts someone who's most likely at risk, uh, how we can mitigate that risk and get testing and good information, we're also looking at knowing that something like that happens and we're, we're going to see major di- disease spread, mm. that the population should be concerned. And so when we start shutting things down, that means people aren't working. And if people aren't working, uh, that tends to mean that they become a little less healthy uh, because and I think we all know this, if you don't have a place to live or you don't have any place to have good food to eat, uh, you're likely right. not in your best health. And so we look at all of these things. And so the economy is also a major part of public health and how we need to recover. It is a twofold recovery, not only physical health, but economic health. Uh, and so it's created a, it's like a, a case study in class happening in real life. And so uh, I've seen the good and the bad, but hopefully we, we get some better days and get this disease under control so we can get back to work um, and find our new normal. Indeed. Um, you know, next year, I, I don't think this school year's going to be normal at all. I, I don't have much hope that we're going to see any kind of normalcy, at least until next May. That's my guess. It, it is going to be a while. And I know people are looking for the vaccine to be the panacea, but it will not be. I mean, just even thinking about distribution, uh, it's going to take a bit for that to happen, even if we were to get one this fall. Mm. So we really do need to continue the advice of constantly washing our hands, socially distancing when we can, wearing a mask uh, everywhere we go if we can wear those masks. Mm -hmm. And when we get a vaccine, it'll be a layered approach into making sure that we can stop the spread of the disease um, in a way that becomes uh, very problematic for the health and well-being of our people as well as the economic viability of our state. Right. Right. I imagine you learned all about, you know, vaccines and how to distribute those on a, in a, epidemic like our experience when you went to school yes and you never use these things and you really hope that you never have to but uh you know i've been trying to find some of my old textbooks and dust <laughs> them off and, and figure yeah. out where they are um and just see uh how you know how we marked up some of that information and, and went through it so it's it's quite interesting um really seeing something like this play out it's the thing that you hope never does play out but it's the reason why good preparation and education and experience is really important. Right, right. So you represent the 34th district of Ohio. Yeah, and the birthplace of champions. Yeah, the birthplace of <laughs> champions. Describe that geographically. Absolutely, it is uh, all of it's in Akron, so all of West Akron, all of North Akron, most of downtown and East and South Akron, and, and I call it the birthplace of champions. Uh, originally, it was because. 
there was a story came out during the NBA Finals a few years ago that LeBron and Steph Curry were both born in the same hospital in my district. And we were all trying to find ways to differentiate ourselves. And so I thought, this is perfect. I mean, LeBron is already very well known, but having Steph Curry be there and during the finals, it was interesting. And then also learned that Larry Nance Jr. was born uh, in the district as well. So we had uh, three basketball superstars to talk about. So we were uh, the birthplace of champions, but also it is a way to recognize those who aren't basketball stars, who are champions for uh, working people, for women's rights, for um, fairness and equality and public schools and all those great things. So it's been kind of fun to call it the birthplace of champions and create something um, that people understand and, and can appreciate and can catch on to. And it's like our little uh, motto here these days. Yeah. Something in the water down there. It's, it's something <laughs> in the water. Come visit anytime. We're happy to have you. Yeah. It's just down the road. I appreciate it. Um, and you are the uh, minority leader of the house democratic party. Yes. So I, what does that involve? Lead, yeah. Everything. <laughs> we, I lead a caucus of 37 Democrats in our political and policy strategy. Um, we, it is a, a pretty massive job, but it's a great job because I get to learn a lot about the state. Um, learned a lot earlier in my term when we were recruiting candidates to run for state house. Um, I get very involved in the policy aspect of it and the lead, the go-to and spokesperson for our caucus. Uh, so it's a pretty big job, uh, which requires a lot of time and energy, but it's been really exciting to, to learn so much, to connect with some really great candidates and members and be a voice for uh, the people that we represent. Our caucus represents over 4 million Ohioans, and making sure that their needs are being met is our primary goal, and that's what we do every single day. Great, and 4 million Ohioans. And how many Ohioans are there in the state? Uh, just over 11 million. Just over 11, okay. But, um, you know, typically the Democrats get elected in the cities and in suburban areas. Is that is that how it shakes out in Ohio as well? It is, but because of gerrymandering, things look very strange. And, you know, gerrymandering is, is, you know, one political party drawing district lines to favor them, even if it is not to the advantage of their citizens. Uh, but for the most part, population trends are in urban areas. You see more liberal Democratic voters right. in the rural areas. They're a bit more conservative. And in recent times, the suburban areas have been quite a bit more conservative. What we've seen over the last five or six years is a more liberal progressive suburban um, Ohio. And so that's created some opportunities for Democrats to uh, win in races where we didn't think we were going to win for. One really interesting statistic is that in the 2018 election, Democrats won 49% of the vote statewide, but we only represent 38% of the legislature. And that is because of gerrymandering. So even though people are voting for Democrats and we're seeing them uh, through the statewide vote totals, when it comes down to representation at the state house, because of gerrymandering, all of those things were, were drawn, all those lines were drawn to make sure that that 49% would not be reflected. So the gerrymandering works very well, but we're working to change that. And there is a, a process next year, if I'm not mistaken, to redistrict our, our state. Is that correct? Yes. And so everyone, if you're listening, if you have not completed your census, please do so. You're running out of time. The end of the month is the last uh, time that you'll be able to. It'll be the deadline. But we use the census data 
to start the process of redrawing maps. And if people will remember in 2015 and in 2017, uh, we all voted for issue one. And issue one was the fair district plan. There's a plan for state legislative districts and there's one for congressional districts. And so after we get the census data, uh, the issue one comes into effect at the beginning of the year in 2021. And as we go through the process of drawing those lines, we have to uh, fall within those guidelines that every, that the citizens of the state of Ohio required us to do, which would require us not to split up counties unnecessarily to keep uh, political subdivisions like uh, cities, counties, villages, uh, um, corporations and townships together as best as we can, um, being mindful that they don't do things like cracking and packing, which are picking certain people out and uh, packing certain uh, demographic groups in. We often see that with ethnic groups. And so we will go through all of that process next year. And hopefully we will see lines that are far more reflective of the state of Ohio, not only in the state legislative districts, as well as our congressional districts. And in your your role as minority leader, will you be involved in that process from the beginning? Yes, yeah, so we'll be very involved in the process, uh, currently involved in the process. I am a co-chair as long, alongside as the uh, Senate president of the uh, state redistricting and reapportionment board. And what we are tasked with doing is allocating funds to both of the caucuses so that they can start the map drawing process. It is actually very, very uh, intricate and interesting process. Uh, we will re- by um, consult. We will work with consultants and attorneys and uh, get people to help because again, this is census data is very granular. Uh, we have a contract right now with Ohio University who's helping us get the information. They've been working with the boards of elections to make sure that we are getting um, all of their data together and it's accurate. And so we've already started the process and we will continue. Uh, doing more things that are probably a little bit more interesting to the voting public. Uh, right now, this stuff is uh, super in the weeds and very, very nerdy. Um, but it is uh, a lot of spreadsheets, a lot of maps, a lot of data. And then when we'll get the census information in the spring, we'll start drawing the maps. Yeah. And then is there a deadline for the the uh, General Assembly to act? Yes. So we have two deadlines. And, and this will be the challenging part because because of COVID, the census uh, we'll have a longer period to uh, go through the information. So we're anticipating getting the census data 30 to 45 days later than we wanted to. The okay. challenge is our Constitution has, because of those ballot initiatives, two initial deadlines being September 1st and September 15th. The 15th. Those are the first two deadlines we have to get our first iterations of the map. So the way it works in each one, and I won't get too much in the weeds in this because it's a little uh, challenging and it's really easier to see on paper, but we have an opportunity to pass the first set of maps out September 1st and then another one for the, the, it varies the congressional and state legislative on the September 15th. If we are unable to agree on those maps, then there is a second set of steps that we have to take in order uh, to get them approved. And it has a few more requirements like ensuring Things are, again, contiguous, and we're not cracking and packing groups. We're keeping certain communities together. And, and as we go through each one of the silos, they call them, um, there are more requirements for us. The other part about this is it requires minority and majority party participation mm-hmm. and votes in order to get a 10-year map. So we have a lot of work to do in a little bit of time. Right. And remember, 
Uh, you know, we've got to, if we're going to completely draw new maps and at least for our state legislative districts, you have to live in the district where uh, you are going to run. Now, the state law gives you a little bit of time to move if the district that you are currently represented changes. Um, but, you know, there may be people who are anticipating running for office and hmm. need to know what district they live in. So we've got to get all these things done so the voters know who their representatives could be. Uh, so there isn't a whole lot of chaos coming for right. these next elections. So, you know, it's just a small task, but we're up to it. Yeah, nothing's riding on that or anything. <laughs> um, so I'm looking at the districting map on the Ohio House webpage. Are there any districts here that the Democratic Party has its eye on in terms of districts that you'd like to see changed? Well, generally all of them. I mean, okay. the maps drawn in 20, uh, 2011, or 2011, excuse me, were not reflective of the state. And, you know, I, have a, I live in a district where, uh, I live in Summit County, mm-hmm. and we have four congressional representatives who represent Summit County, and none of them live in Summit County. And for a county our size, that's really strange. And I have three congressional representatives in my house district. Now, I tell this story all the time back when I was first elected, Tom Sawyer, who was, you know, long-term congressperson, mayor, and state representative and senator. He was my senator. We lived on the same street. We had different congressional representatives. We represented each other in the state house, but he had a different congressperson than I did. And so it seemed very strange. Um, And that's just one of the reasons why this whole thing needs to just, we just need to start over. Uh, We will likely have to because it is being predicted that we, due to population, not necessarily lost, but but not growing as fast as others, we're pretty stagnant here in Ohio. Mm. We're going to lose the congressional seat, so we'll go from 16 to 15. So we're going to have to start the map all over. Uh, And it'll be a good opportunity because this will mean that I will have far more contiguous uh, districts. You won't have the the district, which is called the Snake on the Lake, that goes from Cleveland all the way to Toledo. Um, you know, picks up some land mass where there are no people there. Um, it is some very strange districts that go from one side of the state to the other. We don't need to have that anymore. So, um, really looking forward to completely new maps and just starting all over. Okay. Yeah. So I, so I misspoke. I was, I was looking at the Ohio house district map and I should have been looking at the federal district map for, for Ohio. Well, yeah. And we'll be redrawing those two. And it's very similar. I mean, many of the districts and there are plenty of districts in our state house where you'll look at them and think, how did this make sense? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't. And that's the point of gerrymandering. It is to find the voters that you want to vote for a particular party and not making sure that similarly situated or contiguous communities are together. So, you know, my district, for example, I have, uh, like I said, most of the city of Akron, but I also have one precinct in Bath Township and one precinct in Cuyahoga Falls. Hmm. Um, that seems a little strange because, you know, each precinct has a couple of hundred voters. Perhaps I could have just picked up a precinct in one of the city boards that has been broken up in my okay. district and that way would have made a little bit more sense and so now those voters who live in those two um, communities you know happy to represent them i'm always available for them but they are probably wondering why i'm their state representative rather than the person who represents the remainder of that city or even that board um, and those are the kinds of issues that we see um, and so ultimately it is we want to be more responsive and best responsive to our constituents and having a closer geographic um, 
footprint is a much better way to do that. Yeah, makes sense. Um, I'm just looking at your 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 page on the, uh, the House of Representatives website. Um, two days, three days ago, it looks like um, you put out a statement. We should be in session right now. Yes. What's uh, what's yes. going on? So very early uh, in the spring, before we broke for summer recess, we said to the Republican leadership, we need to be in session. Uh, the coronavirus wasn't taking a recess. Racism isn't taking a recess. Economic downturn is not taking a recess. Neither should we. We should be working for our constituents, trying to figure out the best solutions for them. Um, we are. We had an if-needed session date that the current speaker chose not to use. And still, every day, we are hearing from our constituents about unemployment compensation issues. They're concerned about rent assistance. They're concerned about how they're going to feed their kids. They're concerned about what back-to-school looks like. And we are on recess. And I don't think that is acceptable. Uh, we were elected to do the work of the people. And while we all look forward to having a break, all of these other ills of our society are not taking a break and we should not be either. And so we reached out to the speaker, the current speaker, requesting that we get pulled back into session. Mm -hmm. uh, that was not honored. And we just wanted to make our voices a little bit louder. Our constituents want us to do a lot of things. They have a lot of needs. Our state has a lot of needs. And for us to put our heads in the sand and pretend as, these, as though these things are not happening is not effective leadership. And so that's why we said we should be in session. Right. Right. It's been a very eventful year, of course. Um, you know, the uh, George Floyd situation and the, the follow-up tra tragedies since then that we've seen um, in the news. And, uh, you know, the governor created uh, this minority health strike force that I think you're a part of, right? I am a part of the strike force, and that's been a, a bit of a disappointment. Um, and, and just for a little context, because of my background in public health, and I've done a lot of work in health disparities, we reached out very early to the governor's office and said, I know we don't have the data yet, but I am confident that we're going to see some disparities with the way that COVID presents itself and how it manifests in communities of color. And we wanted to start figuring out a plan so we could ensure uh, those disparities weren't exacerbated unnecessarily. Mm -hmm. uh, eventually, we were able to convince the governor to put together the strike force. Uh, the strike force had a, a deadline of putting out a final report in June. Uh, that report came out two months later. And still to this day, there aren't any systemic actionable steps to stop uh, this health disparity. Uh, we have seen in communities two to three times the rate of COVID um, cases in, in black communities and at least double of hospitalizations and deaths. And this lets us know that people are dying unnecessarily for something that was completely predictable. And if it's predictable, it is preventable. Now what we're seeing is in children who are going back to school, they make up, black children make up 18% of the COVID cases, but get this, 45% of the hospitalizations oh. for black kids, just for black kids. That is devastating. And our children, you know, rely upon us to make decisions for them. And knowing, again, like we just went through this before. We knew, we told the governor, this is going to happen. These disparities are predictable. So let's put something in place ahead of time. And we didn't see it with the full population. And now our children are suffering. And I am 
horribly disappointed that we have not seen more. Um, I'll quickly say this, you know, when we saw the, when it came time to reopen nail salons and hair salons and restaurants, there was a strike force put together, made recommendations and implemented them in a week. The strike force drug its feet for months, missed the deadline, and now we are seeing it play out in some of our most vulnerable population, our kids. And it is unforgivable, quite frankly. Why do you, why do you think there's such a disparity there? Oh, there's a lot of reasons for yeah, the spirit. Not just um, one reason. Yeah, and and one thing that we try to do is push um, racism as a public health crisis, and it's a, you know, for some people it's a very inflammatory term, and it really is not. Uh, there are there's decades of empirical evidence that shows that the impact of racism on uh, communities of color negatively impacts health, and you know, racism being the disparate treatment of one race over the other with usually uh, black and brown communities taking the brunt of the bad treatment. And so it manifests itself in ways, not just in being called names mm. or, and, you know, being exposed to members of the KKK. Uh, it, it is insidious and it is very structural. So it comes in forms of redlining where people may want to buy a home, but because banks have decided that certain communities are not worth the investment, you can't buy a home. And so home, uh, Having a home and, and stability and safe housing is one of the uh, foundations of good health. And so if you don't have a good home, you won't have good health. And if you don't have access to the capital or mortgage, you may not have that good home. So that that is one of the things that plays out. Many of these communities also don't have grocery stores with fresh, fresh fruits and vegetables. So we're reliant upon uh, processed food products. Right. Uh, to heat and that's not good and it, it leads to chronic diseases and we've talked about chronic diseases in communities of color and people who have chronic diseases don't fare as well when they get COVID. Uh, that's one of the symptoms of it. When we talk about environmental things and the water and the air that people are drinking, again, many of these homes in, in, in Cleveland particularly have a lot of lead in these homes and this mm. is where Cleveland has a large black population and and Again, talk about redlining where people and, and Cleveland being one of the most segregated cities in the entire country. Mm. Um, all of the people exposed to that lead are tend to be many of the people black. And so all of these systemic decisions that have been made um, decades ago, generations ago, which make it much harder for people to do and be well, mm. um, is the reason why we wanted to take up the issue of racism as a public health crisis. Uh, which, again, is something else that we haven't had much traction on because some people just don't believe it. Um, but we just want to have the conversation so we can uh, go through some of the things that I just shared with you. Um, I can give many more examples, but it's, you know, we just want people to be willing to open their hearts and minds to another perspective. Right, 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 right. Um, wow. So when is the next time you guys go into session? I'm not exactly sure. Um, I'm hopeful that we will be back in session next week. Uh, there are some CARES Act dollars that need to be appropriated. Mm -hmm. uh, our local governments need those funds in order to continue uh, providing services to our communities. Uh, we have bills right now that we are hoping to get passed around rent assistance. Uh, we have some telemedicine bills that we hope to pass. Uh, we would like to get some answers around the election and voting. If you've been paying attention to the news, we've seen a lot of stuff about drop boxes and mm -hmm. uh, absentee ballot requests online. Uh, we could figure some of those things out. There's plenty of work to do, and hopefully next week 
uh, will be an opportunity for us to do some of those things. Um, I don't know what's going to happen, but we've, we've made the request and hopefully we will hear something positive from the current speaker. Right. Well, part of the big news this summer, amongst all the other huge news, is House Bill 6 and the political scandal that was involved related to House Bill 6. Uh, former Speaker Larry Householder was indicted by the uh, the federal government for bribery and, and violations of federal law um, relating to the passage of House Bill 6, which was uh, the utilities bailout. Um that's a unique situation with the, your party, uh, the, which was invited in to to participate in, I guess, what would you call it, the um, um, householders, um, what would you call it, that his group that of lawmakers that got him elected speaker? Well, actually, every time we elect a speaker, it is typically a bipartisan vote. Yeah. Uh, so it seemed... And, 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 I, and it was an interesting way of electing a speaker. It was not normal. Um, I will say, you know, most folks haven't paid an awful lot of attention to the Ohio House. And if they did, they would know we've had four speakers in four years, two of them who have resigned under, under FBI investigation. Or, right. And so there has been a lot of problems in the Republican caucus with being able to pick their leadership yeah. and their inability to rally around themselves has been very problematic for the entire state because they don't have their affairs in order. They can't leave the house and they can't leave the state. Right. And we've seen that time and time and time again. Um, the unfortunate part is, you know, we all suffer because of it. And there's always someone looking to find blame uh, mm-hmm. to someone else instead of the people who have perpetrated these things that were at fault. So I was and struggling so, with a word to, 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 to describe it, but I mean, to point out that it's always bipartisan, that's important. Um, but it's not always the case that the minority party gets any kind of say in the matter, right? Not usually, but again, as I said before, they, you know, we worked with them and we stayed out of their election. We asked them to figure it out with amongst themselves and they just were unwilling to do it. They fought and fought and fought and fought. And we just said, at some point, you guys have to make a decision, yeah. and none of the none of them could come up with fifty votes. Right. Um, you know that is a requirement of coming voting for the speaker, and so you know we've talked about this, and people have asked us this question multiple yeah. times, which is perfectly fine. Uh, but what was out of tradition was the Republicans or the majority party not putting up one person to vote for. Uh, that right. is protocol. They and- broke protocol. Um, and we had to pick somebody to vote for, and we did. I, I only ask not not to assign blame for picking a bad person. I mean, we, you're innocent until proven guilty. But I ask because, uh, in relation to your job as minority leader, uh, did it does it differ today than it was when Householder was speaker? Was there a difference between the way he involved you versus the way um, Speaker Cup um, you expect him to involve you? Well, you know, with each speaker, we've had just different levels of engagement. Um, you know, prior to uh, the former, 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 former speaker uh, who left under FBI investigation, his handpicked successor didn't engage with Democrats, didn't uh, want to work with Democrats. Uh, we 
you know, spoke with both candidates and said, well, this, these are some things that we think we should have. We should have more transparency um, with video cameras. We should have an HR director because there had been under the, mm-hmm. the at the time, the two pre, the, the current speaker at that time, the previous one, several complaints against, about sexual harassment right. um, and racial discrimination, and they had not been handled well. And we said, you know, we need to get someone who is a professional to handle these issues because this is creating a lot of problems within our staff and the morale, and we need to fix this. Right. Um, they were not able, they did not want to address those issues. We were concerned about issues uh, about our labor partners and wanting members of organized labor not to you know, have to go through the rigmarole of uh, the anti-right to work legislation that we've seen and we continue to see and making it harder for workers to get good jobs and be on safe work work sites. And so uh, we talked to both candidates about it and uh, listened to them. And one was willing to hear us out and agree to some of those things about transparency and a more professional work environment. And the other one flat out told us, no, Um, you know, we wanted to make sure that the legislature was uh, a much better place for our young staffers to come in. And many of those those cries fell on deaf ears. So, you know, obviously, if we would have known this would have happened, perhaps yeah, we right. may, would have made a different decision. Right. Um, you know, we, again, begged and pleaded them to figure it out on their own, find the, the person who would be best for them. They were unwilling to do that. And at, at some point, we had to make a decision. You know, as legislators, we don't get a, a maybe button. We don't get an easy no, button. Right. It's just yes or no. Right. Um, and so we, we had to make a decision. No, I understand. Um, were you able to get issues of importance addressed under the prior speaker? Yes, we were. So one of the things was uh, broadening the access to committees. Um, you know, there is just a lot of really strange things happening in committees. Uh, you know, committee chairs were not following the rules. Um, they were tabling amendments in, in strange ways. They were being very disrespectful to constituents who were coming in to testify as well as members of the minority party. Um, and, and the other part was we wanted to have video cameras mm-hmm. and archived tapes of our committee meetings because everyone can't get to Columbus to testify and watch what's going on. Right. Uh, and it was something that we had been asking for at that time for over a decade. Can, can, since the Democrats lost the majority, we were trying to get cameras into these committee rooms so people could see what was happening from wherever they were in in the world, quite frankly. Sure. Um, sure. And it was something that we were able to get. We were able to get a, a um, bipartisan, a nonpartisan, I should say, HR professional to come in and help with issues around training staff and onboarding staff and dealing with disciplinary issues, which is something that we didn't have. Uh, the previous person was a political appointee and oftentimes Staff, especially in the minority caucus, were used as pawns, and if they didn't like a bill that a, a legislator introduced, then they would be some type, type of retribution against our staff, which is obviously not fair and it's not their fault. Right. Um, those are issues that if you have a professional staffer go through it, we wouldn't have it. And and so we saw a lot less of those activities. Uh, you know, the anti-workers bill did not make it on the floor. Um, there was a much more support for labor. Uh, which was uh, has always been a very important Democrat principle. So there were some uh, things that went right, but House Bill 6 was absolutely the thing that went entirely wrong. Uh, it was an abomination. Uh, we are working currently to repeal it. 
Um, unfortunately, the Republicans and the current speaker is making it very challenging. Uh, we have offered amendments. We've introduced bills. Um, quite frankly, the reason why we're not having session is so that they don't, they're not forced to repeal House Bill 6. Um, you know, if there's going to be a replacement, we've got to repeal it first. Right. I don't know what the holdup is, but they don't seem willing to want to get rid of the stain that is hovering over the Ohio House. Well, one thing I really um, appreciate your standing with us here in the Northeast Ohio area on is Senate Bill 152, which unfortunately didn't go our way, um, but was the residency law, um, where basically the General Assembly, uh, over your objection, passed a law that makes it illegal for cities to require contractors to use city residents on city jobs. Um, so we appreciate you being with us on that. Uh, that was a big loss for us. Um, but you know, I got to think that in this didn't involve police officers or, or law enforcement all, at all. Another, I think judicial decision decided their issue, but I got to think that if, if, uh, police officers were allowed to be hired from the places that they are policing, we may not have as many problems with policing as we currently have. Yeah, I, I, I would tend to agree with you. And that was that issue, the local hiring, was one of my first uh, battles in the legislature. And it was an issue in the city of Akron because we have um, a sewer project that is very expensive for the ratepayers. And the way that uh, we were able to, well, at least the city was able to sell it was we'll get more employees from uh, the city on this job. They're good paying jobs, many of them union jobs. And uh, that way, it'll make it easier for you to take on the burden of these costs. And it was a big deal for us in Akron. And it was a, a huge blow, just as it was to folks up in, I know, in Cloga County, as well as in urban communities across the state. Uh, you know, we had, I know part of that came from the city of Akron and the lawsuits that uh, ensued afterwards. But, you know, we were very much engaged in that fight. That was one that many members of my community uh, came down and testified and did everything that they could to slow it down or eliminate it altogether. Uh, ultimately, as you mentioned, we're not successful. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that we've heard from some of the partners in, in the opposition on that side, and they were open to discussions. And we were starting that process, and then COVID hit, and so those have stalled. So okay. hopefully we can get back to uh, the table with the folks um, who pressed back on that really hard and find some ways to encourage more local hiring because that is, especially for urban areas, a, a huge deal. I know it was a big deal um, and not necessarily construction projects or public um, projects, public works projects, but even down on the river where there were folks coming in for fracking from out of state and we're saying, well, you could use local hiring here too. There's right. Maybe there's some principles that you can adopt that are not exactly what we did, but something so you could, you and your communities can feel that same uh, economic boom. So we'll continue to work on that one. It, although we may have lost that battle, I don't think we lost the war. So we'll keep going. Great, great. We appreciate that. Um, so, what are you most proud of? You've been in the in the house since 2014. What are you most proud of during your time there? Well, fortunately, I have a lot to be proud of, and I think it's you know I've. I focus my attention on my constituents and making sure that I'm working for them and doing what they are asking me to do and staying connected. Uh, but one of the 
things I'm most proud of is um, a bill I was able to introduce and get passed, House Bill 1. Uh, House Bill 1 was a bill I introduced my first term, which is 392, and it allowed victims of dating violence to obtain civil protection orders. Um, in law school, I worked very closely with an intimate partner violence clinic and helping victims get out of horrible relationships, violent relationships, and finding them on a path where they could uh, live out their best lives. And was going through a CLE when I moved back home, found out that Ohio did not have these protections, and ultimately, through more research, found that Ohio and Georgia were the only two states in the entire country who did not have protections. Wow. So introduced the bill my first term. Um, it died in lame death. There was uh, some horrible opposition to it. Um, really very unfortunate. But the next General Assembly, it was revived as House Bill 1, which designated as the uh, most important piece of legislation. It was a priority piece of legislation for that General Assembly. Uh, that's what the importance of it being listed number one. It is actually number one. And so that bill was passed. It's been in effect for about two years now. I am hopeful. I know this is not true that no one has had to use it, but um, in the event that people do, there are protections there and that is what is most important. So that is probably um, my proudest piece of legislation, mostly because it was certainly a labor of love. And I thought about all the clients that I worked with when I was in law school and how impactful it was to be able to have uh, these protection orders and how it changed their lives and people in Ohio deserve the same. So I am very proud of that piece of legislation and glad that we were able to get that through. Yeah. It's really amazing to think that uh, we didn't have that prior to two years ago. Yes, it, it, it was, especially considering that so many states had it. And, and, you know, one thing about Ohio is we're usually not the, uh, the groundbreakers and the trailblazers on a lot of things. But at this, but when I kept saying to people, 48 other states and the District of Columbia, they've had this legislation uh, for many years. So we can pick whichever one, we can model it from whichever state. Um, and even then, there was still a lot of pushback, which was uh, very troubling. What was uh, but the pushback? Is, I, I can't can imagine what it would be. Yeah. So one of the first conversations that I had with the legislator who uh, opposed it when it first came around prior to me being a legislator was he, he Flat out said this, it was stupid. It was a stupid piece of legislation. Um, you know, many people tend to think, and I don't know why, that people will use these types of bills to punish ex-boyfriends when they get their feelings hurt. Mm. And, you know, that is just not the reality. These types of bills, those bills that, you know, violence against women bills, whether they're rape or domestic violence or intimate partner, you know, there are always people who misuse the legal system, just as people misuse everything, but it is not any more than any other type of bill. Mm-hmm. Um, and any false claims are minimal, again, just as any other bill, and they are found out very quickly. The stories just don't hold up. Mm-hmm. Um, so to deny a group of people uh, the right to protection because a group of folks are going to misuse it is not right and it's not okay. And so we had to fight back that narrative of this is going to be retribution or punishment or they're going to get back at uh, someone because they broke up with them or whatever it might be um, was just not the case. And so that was unfortunately a, a large part of the battle, okay. but we were able to prevail and it passed out of the house uh, multiple times unanimously, which was great. So there, there is a need for it. There is unfortunately um a very high need for it and young people in dating relationships as people continue to not marry, get married as often, need these types of pieces of legislation because current law is based on uh, 
domestic violence is a legal term, not what you think it might be. So if you don't fit that legal definition, you don't get the protections. And we are trying to ensure that all people who are in these types of relationship dynamics, that's the protection they need. Great. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. And then as you face the next couple months until the election and then post-election, what are the most one or two most important things you're working on? So the most important things are making sure that COVID uh, does not continue to ravage our communities. Uh, We need people to be healthy. And then the second part is the economic recovery. So it's two recoveries. We need to recover from COVID and we need to recover our economy. And they go hand in hand. And that is what we will be laser focused on uh, for the next probably year. Um, I'm not sure what uh, the disease path will look like. Um, But one thing I know for sure is that we were not going to be able to maintain uh, this type of economic downturn for very much longer. It's it's not going to be good. I used to work in bankruptcy court and I was a law clerk and am anticipating an uptick in foreclosures and and bankruptcies and all of those things. And we just need to be prepared for those types of issues. But the first step is getting a handle on the coronavirus so people are safe and healthy and feel confident and spending money and going out and about. Um, And that is what we will be laser focused on for the next uh, couple of months and probably next year. What are, what are we doing as a state or what aren't we doing as a state that we should or shouldn't be doing to get this COVID thing addressed? Well, first thing we need to have uh, a health director. It would be great if we had someone leading the charge. And while the current interim health director is an attorney and I have nothing against attorneys, but I know what my training was like in law school and it is not a, it is not effective for uh, navigating a global pandemic. And so, um, you know, at some point, the people who don't believe that the coronavirus is real or that their freedoms are being infringed upon because they're wearing a mask have to understand that the way you get your freedom back is once we get to minimizing uh, the virus and containing it, because we just have no control over it. That's the other part. We just never know when there's going to be an outbreak. It's hard to track it. Um, the data is awful. Um, we won't be able to get to that new normal or normal wherever people want to go. And we need someone leading us who has experience. There's not a whole lot of people who have experience in global pandemics, which is a good mm-hmm. thing, right. but at least know how to start navigating that. And uh, that is the first step that we need to do. And then all of the public health things that come with that, the testing, the contact tracing, uh, the isolation, and doing it in a way that people feel comfortable and they feel safe um, and that their freedoms aren't infringed upon. And that is going to take all of us not politicizing the virus and letting it be what it is and following the science in order to do it. Um, So if we can do those things, we will be much better off um, as well as supporting our local governments as well as and some financial assistance as well as uh, homeowners and renters making sure that they can remain in their homes because the last thing we need is a lot of people not being able to pay their rent or be able to feed themselves or get themselves to work. And then that creates a whole nother level of problems. Right. Well, I certainly appreciate you being down at the, down in Columbus representing uh, Akron and Northeast Ohio for all the hard work you're putting in. And certainly this year, especially uh, everybody's working overtime in, in the legislature this, this year. So thank you for that. And is there anything else you'd like to leave us with? Yes, just a couple of things. Um, one, thank you so much, Tim, for having me on today. Really appreciate it, the time with you. But 
Um, to anyone listening, please fill out your census. If you have not done it already, you're going to run out of time at the end of the month. So please do that. Uh, get registered to vote. The deadline is October 5th. If you are already registered, check your registration to make sure you're still in the rolls and get a couple of your friends registered. And then the third thing is figure out your voting plan. Uh, there are a lot of options. You can vote by mail, absentee. You can vote absentee in person, vote early in person, or you can vote on election day. Whichever way you choose, just make sure you have a plan and perhaps a backup plan in case that doesn't work, especially if you're planning to vote on election day. Uh, everything seems to be going okay so far, uh, but really, if you can vote early and be one of the first people to cast your vote in, you don't have to worry about it or be concerned about what happens on November 3rd, whether that's weather or an outbreak get it over with, um, please do those things. So census, register to vote, make a voting plan. Excellent. Leader Sykes, thanks again and hope you have a great weekend and uh, all the best. Thank you. Thank you so much. You do the same. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you for listening. To find more information about the discussion in this or prior episodes, be sure to check the episode notes section in your podcast app. Get notified and automatically download the latest episode by subscribing to the Construction Employers Podcast in the iTunes Store or in Google Play. This podcast is brought to you by the Construction Employers Association. Find us on the web at www.ceacisp.org.